My love for food is actually my love for eating. My mother told me the story that, that I mean, she loved telling me the story that when I was practically newborn, I ate, I would, she kept bringing me back to the pediatrician because all I wanted to do all day was eat. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food here in France or around the world. They cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. But above all, they love it. Traditional French dishes aren't all just coq au vin, soupe d'oignon, ratatouille or boeuf bourguignon, you know. When you walk around some French markets, you see cuts of meat or already made dishes that haven't made it to the classic Western French cookbooks. Dishes that the French have been making at home or have in restaurants for generations. And one such dish is our topic for this episode. Today on Fabulously Delicious, we are talking all things Blanquet de Veau. Veal is not only a meat that is used often in France, but it also seems to be seasonal, abundant at certain times of the year and not really available at others. So today's episode is a lover of the Blanquet de Veau, French food and France. She loves France so much, she brought a hotel, which we'll talk about later. Jamie Schur, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here, Jamie. Before we talk all things Blanca DeVoe, and also before we get to know you a bit more, I wanted to find out all about your dad. Where did your dad work? My dad worked for, okay, my dad in the 50s started, got his first job uh, out of college, which he did after the war on the GI Bill in Newport News, Virginia, working for uh, NACA, which was came before NASA NASA. And, um, wow. Yeah, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Then when NASA was created in, I think, 1958, my father was one of the engineers that was, I think they, they uh, when they could, that was when they created the manned space flight program and decided to put man into space. And so there were 12 systems, and they put an engineer at the head of each system. My dad was head of life support, so he was given the job of developing um, life support and then uh, monitoring environmental control during missions. So that's what he did. And in 62, when they created Cape, um, the branch in Cape Canaveral, Florida, my dad was sent down there. Wow. So what was like life as what was life like as a child of a NASA employee? It's very funny because I grew up in a place where all of our dads, and it was unfortunately usually dads back then, um, everybody's dads either worked for NASA or they were um, we lived right next door to a um, an army uh, officer training base. So they were either officers in the military or they worked for NASA. And so it's just everybody's dads did that. So nobody thought it was anything unusual. So we never talked about it. And my dad never, ever talked about himself, ever. So we didn't know until really after he passed away the details of what he did. Um, So it was, um, yeah, it was interesting. So we just grew up in this time where... You know, all of our dads would call us on the telephone and say, okay, go outside with the binoculars now. And we'd all run outside with the binoculars for the launch. And um, and that was, you know, that was the life we grew up with. So it was 
It's not weird. It's just weird. When I think about it now, it's weird. Did you dream of space then as a kid? No. In fact, when I was little, I remember I kept thinking that my father actually did test drove the spaceships. (gasps) Right. (laughs) That was my image of him when I was a kid. Um, And then when we were teenagers, we all got to be really terrible, bleeding heart liberal teenagers. So we used to, my poor dad would sit at the dinner table. He would never utter a word. And we'd sit there saying, you know, why are we wasting all this money on space travel when we should be feeding the and housing the poor in our country? So, you know, my poor dad. <laughs> Did he cook? My dad baked, um, which was very weird. Right. What was his favorite thing to make? Well, my dad, he, he baked everything. He made some things from boxes and some things from scratch. So he made like cream puffs from scratch so he made his you know his shoe pastry from scratch but he made you know sheet cakes for thursday night bingo at the synagogue he made he made sheet cakes and but he 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 never had anybody help him um he's probably like i am kind of maniac in the kitchen but he i used to get to watch him and because he was this you know aeronautical you know this 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 mechanical engineer he just had this kind of real concentration when he baked, and it just always fascinated me. So I just I grew up watching him and loving watching him. And since my mom hated to cook, my mom cooked, but she hated to cook. It was really something kind of fascinating to watch my dad with this, you know, baking with an obvious passion. And I think that's why I love baking so much. Well, baking sort of makes sense, really, doesn't it? Because of the, you know, the, you have to stick to a recipe and it is all about numbers and, and grams and all of those sorts of things. Otherwise, it can go terribly wrong. And that's what being an engineer would be all about, I would say, as well. For NASA, you know, it's all about yeah. numbers and making sure everything goes <laughs> to plan and, and otherwise it all goes terribly wrong. It really makes sense. <laughs> Where did your love for food come from? I... My love for food is actually my love for eating. I, um, right. <laughs> my mother told me the story that, that, I mean, she loved telling me the story that when I was practically newborn, I ate, I would, she kept bringing me back to the pediatrician because all I wanted to do all day was eat. And so I just grew up always eating all the time. I can sit and eat nonstop all day. Um, but when I was a kid, I would kind of do these weird food experiments. Like, you know, it's like, you get home from school mother was having while well, my brother was having uh, my little brother was having things like you know cookies and cake and ding dongs and stuff i would make myself um i learned how to make cocktail sauce with horseradish and ketchup and i would defrost shrimp and eat you know shrimp cocktail for after school snack and i would do things like you know peanut butter sandwich for months and months and months i would try every different thing on a peanut butter sandwich bologna salami bananas potato chips to see what the flavor combinations were like so that was basically what i did growing up but i'd never co- i never really cooked except you know we had to make our own breakfasts and lunches because my, since my mom hated to cook whatever she could <laughs> push off onto us to do for ourselves she would so I mean, we grew, yeah, we grew up very comfortable in the kitchen. We just never thought about cooking fancy things. It was always just, you know, cooking something that tasted good to eat. 
I just want to backtrack there just a little bit. You mentioned your brother eating a ding-dong. In Australia, a ding-dong is a doorbell, and it's also like it's the sound that a doorbell makes, and it's also the word for something that I can't say on the podcast because I don't want to say have to tick the box to say it has adult material. So what is a ding-dong? Oh, ding-dongs and ho-hos and all those kind of weird oh, things. What's a ho-ho? Yes. Yeah, there are all these pre-packaged cakes. They're not actually not bad. They're, you know, chocolate and cream and little Debbies and all these little packaged cakes that we grew up with that, you know. That's hilarious. I mean, if I'd gone as a child, if I'd said to my mum I wanted a ding-dong or a ho-ho, I would have <laughs> got a backhand. Like, I would have been in trouble. Actually, those have those kind of meanings in the States. Which oh, do they? Okay. Where where the creators of these of these snack cakes came up with their names. That's interesting. We'll have to research that. <laughs> so I'm assuming you grew up then because it's NASA, you grew up in Florida? Yes. Right. And so is Florida all oranges and citrus, or is there more to food in Florida than just oranges and citrus? I, well, I grew up on the ocean. I grew up on the Atlantic Ocean. So, and, and I grew up actually on the Indian River, which is world famous for its citrus. So I grew up with citrus. But it's also, um, no, it's basically seafood, um, alligator, um, hush puppies, which are like, cornbread fritters and they're eaten they're eaten as a side dish with seafood but they're you put powdered sugar on them so they're kind of safe and sweet and um so it was basically that i mean it was a very you know because especially because where we lived was between river and ocean it was everything seafood was basically the food from seafood and citrus. You studied uh, psychology and art history at university. So after studying that, how did you end up in France? I graduated college and I was in Philadelphia and I started working in, I wanted to go into art dealing, art. Re- I couldn't go, I didn't continue my studies so I couldn't really go into art history research, which I liked. Um, so I started working for art dealers in Philadelphia and then New York. And then two years into my stay in New York, I got fed up with everything and packed up and moved. <laughs> I, I, I dumped, literally, literally emptied my apartment onto the sidewalk in front of my building, um, gave some valuable, a few valuable things I had uh, to my brother who lived downstairs from where I was living and I took two suitcases and I cashed in a savings bond and I left. I was kind of, I was kind of fed up with politics, with my job, with life in the eighties, you know what I mean? So. And so you now have a French husband. So did you meet him in France? No, I met him two years later. I, for those first two years I was in France, I would um, use, I would, when I would run out of money, uh, when I was down to like the cost of a one-way ticket back to the stage, States, which was back then pretty cheap, I would go back and I would go back, even, well, first to New York, I did some work for my old boss. I helped her research a book she was writing. And the other times I went down to Florida and I would temp for two or three months. Um, and then I would fly back to France with the money I'd earned and then 
I would do that every few months. Every couple of months, I would fly back to Florida to temp for another two months and then go back to Paris. And two years later, I met and uh, very quickly married my husband. So how did you actually get into food then? So I, well, actually, when I was working for an art dealer in New York, she wrote, the first book she wrote was a small cookbook that she wrote with a friend of hers who was also not in... I can't remember the other person was not in uh, food at all either. They just decided to do this cookbook. So she actually helped me do a lot. She had me do a lot of like re- um, researching recipes and testing and developing recipes and things like that. So I kind of got a taste for it. And um, then when I got married, by complete chance, I was looking for a job because suddenly when I was married, I could legally work. And I found, we found, this was the end of the 80s, when there still weren't a lot of Americans in Paris who had created their own companies. Um, And so there happened to be, we found in a public library, a book that was uh, a a book on Americans in Paris. And it listed just a whole lot of Americans who had created their own businesses in Paris, and one of them was a man called Robert Noah, who had created what I assume was the very first high-end culinary tourism, probably anywhere, um, called Paris en Cuisine. And I found it, and my husband said, call him, call him, see if he needs an assistant. And the thing is to know, too, is that I was... (laughs) was very pregnant at this time too <laughs> because I remember I remember ringing his doorbell and he opened it up and I was standing there probably seven or eight months pregnant which was funny but um so I I called him and I said do you need an assistant and he said I happen to yes I actually happen to need one because my assistant it was him and an assistant and he said my assistant just left to move back to the states so he gave me this job, which was fantastic, which was very hard because my I had to improve my French really fast, and I had to learn everything I could about French cuisine very quickly because he did the French tourism part, and his partners were like Michelin-starred chefs and, you know, high, the highest of the highest-end food um, artisans in Paris, and we would take people there and act as interpreter. And he also had recently created the Anglophone program at uh, a very prestigious um, cooking school in Paris that for French people, for French kids, that gave a CAP. And he created a nine-month intensive program that, so not, uh, Anglophones, people from around the world could come and do the course and get the French CAP diploma in cooking. And he had been acting as interpreter, and he said, oh, I'm going to turn all that over to you. So I acted as an interpreter at this cooking school as well. And, um, and so I did this, and it was, uh, it was kind of freelance. I didn't work every day. I worked like one or two days a week, but for four years. So I learned between on the job and standing in a cooking school and listening to cooking, you know, cooking instructors in a cooking school and all the reading I did on the side, uh, I learned a tremendous amount um, in those four years. 
And so that's kind of got me. So I started actually food blogging many years later because I, I stopped working for him when we, my husband got a job transferred to Italy. So we moved to Milan and, and that was in 92 and I started food blogging in 2008. So there was a big gap where I did other things. You told me offline that you, the history of French food is one of your favorite topics. I mean, you studied uh, art history at university. So why do you love French food history so much? Um, probably the same reason I love art history because it's um, the, the food history is kind of a, by, by picking one topic like food, you learn so much about a country's history, about a culture, um, about a social history of a country and a people and the evolution of it. And food is really, um, really does that. It's when you, when you go back to find the origin of a dish, you learn all about who was doing what at that time and what the social situation was and what the historical situation was. And, and then you follow the dish through time. Uh, and I also like literary references of food. And so you tie it all together and you just get this really fascinating journey of, of a people and a country and a culture. And I just, I just find that fascinating. Plus you get all these little stories, these little legends that are always really interesting. You now live in Chinon. Uh, why did you move to Chinon? We bought the hotel. Ah, that's well, that was going to be my next question, is that you actually run a hotel. So how did that come about? Well, we were living in Nantes. We moved to Nantes. Um, we were living in the suburbs of Paris. We decided to quit everything and change our lives. And we moved to Nantes and started over. And... At that time, my husband was having a very hard time finding a job and because he was very specialized. And, um, and after a while, we said, well, you know, we're not the kind, you know, we don't, we're not, you know, independently wealthy. We need, work, we need an income. So if you can't, if the job doesn't come, come to you, you have to create the job. So you have to go and buy, you know, start a business or buy, buy a business. So we decided that hotel for the two of us, from what I had done in tourism and what he had done in business and management, and we were multilingual, multicultural, that hotel made sense for us. And so we started looking, and that was 2003. Then he was offered a very good job, and so we kind of put it in cardboard boxes and put it away. And then when he finished his mission seven years later, we thought, well, what are we going to do now? And kind of started the same cycle again of, you know, job hunting. And, and we thought, well, we might as well now just buy the hotel. And so we pulled out all the cardboard boxes and we started looking. And this hotel popped up on our radar. And we visited it and, and said, yes, this is it. And it's not a chambre d'hôte, is it? It's an actual hotel. Like how many rooms do you have? 27 rooms with a maximum capacity of 53 people. 
Wow. And so what's the weirdest or funniest thing that's ever happened to you running uh, the hotel? Now, our prerequisites that is that I used to manage when I was ooh, in my 20s. I was the night manager for a hotel so in Sydney. So I've seen a lot of things. So I know some of the things that can happen in hotels. What's the weirdest or funniest thing that's happened to you running the hotel? Oh, God. You know, I'm writing a book. I'm writing the book. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Which, which I cannot finish. I cannot put you know publish until we sell the hotel i'm trying to think because there were so many um i don't know it's uh, typical typical funny things are one morning um i don't think i think it was slightly off season so we were we had a lot of guests but not a lot of guests and for some reason the water cut off at like seven in the morning which is very rare it's the only time it's happened and we're starting to panic and all of a sudden it's like all of these couples in the hotel, um, and we seem to only have at that time like mm, couples of a certain age. And um, suddenly, it's like all the wives said to their husband, can you go downstairs and see what's going on? So, so all of a sudden, we had one gentleman, an elderly gentleman after another, coming downstairs in his their underwear, like they had just gotten out of bed or out of the shower. <laughs> And just all coming down in their underwear saying, there's no water. What's going on? <laughs> so it's just, you know, things like that. Or I've just realized that's what the robe's for <laughs> in the hotel. I've never realized that. Because I'm thinking, why do I need to wear a robe in a hotel room when it's just me and my right. other half or me by myself? But that's the reason. That's what that's for. It's for me to pop that on so I can come down and tell you that the water's not working. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways that you can do this. The first, possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and a rating. A five-star one, well, that would be fabulous, especially if you're listening on Apple or Spotify. Share Fabulously Delicious around with your friends, family, co-workers or anyone that you know loves French food or just food in general. Are you a Patreon member? Well, if you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming one, for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive grade content just for you. You can find out more through the link in the show notes of this episode. On to today's topic, the blanket, blanket de veau. Did I say that right? Yes, blanket. Yeah. I do feel like I want to say blanket, but blanket's uh, the name that we, we, if we're a pop star, we name our children, um, which is kind of weird, but let's just move on from that. So in English, how does that translate? What What is blanket de veau? Um, I don't know, but blanc is white, which is the colour of the dish. The dish is white. It's yeah, white meat served with a white, with a white sauce. And so, where in France is it traditionally from? It's not really traditionally from a region. It's um, the first. It it, sh- it showed up in the first cookbook in 1735 in Le Cuisinier Moderne, uh, the modern cookbook by Vincent de la Chapelle, who was a master cook to Madame de Pompadour. And I've I've recently read that they. I think it had been created in a restaurant in Paris or had been served in a restaurant in Paris before it showed up in its cookbook. But it's one of those dishes that was created to use up um, to use up leftover veal, cooked veal. 
So it could have come from anywhere. Could have come from anywhere. Fuel is not something that is used a lot in some countries uh, nowadays, especially like in Australia. We haven't really uh, utilised fuel. I didn't. I definitely didn't grow up with it. It can be seen as being an old-fashioned meat. Is that the case here in France? Is it old-fashioned or is it uh, something that's a staple? I think, well, you do see it in restaurants now, but it's hard to tell with restaurants today because restaurants today are doing a lot with old-fashioned French dishes. And and so you'll see a lot of a lot of ingredients and a lot of very more humble ingredients uh, like veal, like like endives, like things like that, that are being used more and more in restaurants. So it's it's hard to tell, but it is something that um, I mean, my my in laws were very 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 working class, and they my my mother in law did roast veal roast and these long cooked dishes with. Um, uh, with veal, it's kind of like I guess like ossobuco, which is veal in Italy. It's it's poor man's food, yeah. It just but what you said, what I find fascinating is what you said about its seasonality, which it is because things like, um, uh, you know, young animals like veal and stuff are seasonal. Seasonal, but what I've discovered in France is that there are a lot of things seasonal. I was developing a recipe for a newspaper, a magazine in the states. Um, in the summertime, I had to develop the recipe and I wanted to do a, a daube, okay, with beef. So I went to my local butcher and I, in the summer and I said, I'd like daube for, I'd like um, beef for daube. And he said, Madame, it's not the season. And it's the same, weirdly enough, I went to my butcher and I said, uh, I wanted, I was in the mood to make choucroute, uh, Alsatian's choucroute. And I said, I'd like Frankfurters for choucroute. And he said, Madame, it's not the season. Yeah, I know. I went to the market today, and the um, the one stand that I go to to get things uh, from you know a butchery stand point of view, uh, she did not have any beef at all today because they just it's not the time of the year for them to have beef on there. They get their beef. It's the always the because we're in the area just right next to Chateau Poitou. Charente Poitou is right next to the Limoges, Limousine area. Um, and so they get the beef from there and it's just not the season for it. Lots of veal though. Um, is it considered a delicacy here in France or is it something that you have regularly? No, I no, it's, to, it's not a delicacy to me. And so is it cooked the same as beef or does it need to be treated differently? Or does that pe- depend on the cut of veal? It's it's like beef in that it depends on the cut, which is which is actually um, the origins of veal blanquette or and other dishes like this because originally it was made something like a blanquette, which was basically meat boiled for a long time until it was tenderized and then covered in a sauce. Um, it was used either for leftover cooked veal or other dishes like this for me, cooked, uh, you know, leftover cooked veal, or the cheaper cuts that couldn't be served roasted because back then what was prestigious was a, a roasted 
hunk of meat. I mean, it was they would cut, take the cuts of meat and and roast it, and that was what was prestigious. Everything else was considered lesser quality. So that's the cut. You would take that kind of those kind of cuts and long cook it, boil it in water, and then cover it with a sauce. So apart from the blanquette de veau, the, the blanquette de veau, I will get that correctly. Um, what's your favorite way of cooking veal? I do either veal chops, veal chops with apples is very good, um, or I've breaded and uh, either pan fried or oven fried veal chops, or I do um, blanquette, I do osobuco, um, things like that. Yeah, you're making me hungry now. What then is meant by the term blanquette? I mean, you sort of touched on it just before, but explain. So what is, what does the term blanquette mean? Well, blanquette is from blanc, which is white. And basically you're taking a white meat, veal. Um, it was long done with chicken as well. Uh, later on, it's, it's been done with a firm, fleshy fish like monkfish. Uh, or lamb, I do a version with lamb, but it's cooked just in water, uh, seasoned with salt and pepper, uh, bouquet garni, uh, and just kind of, you know, economical vegetables like onion and carrot and sometimes leek. And once the meat is cooked, you take everything, you take it out. Um, it's not been browned. Some people pre uh, saute it a little bit in butter, but because the meat is supposed to come to the table white, you're not supposed to cook it so it colors um, or browns. So usually you just cover it with water and, uh, and cook it. So that comes out white. When you're serving it, you discard all the vegetables, or you can serve them on the side, but your, your sauce has to be free of like an orange carrot, for example. And then you make a white sauce, starting with, most commonly starting with a roux, which is butter and flour, which is then turned into a bechamel with the, um, the broth that you've created by the long cooking of the veal in the water. And then it's enriched with eggs, egg yolks, um, sometimes uh, cream or crème fraîche, and it comes out white. Now, it became very popular over time to saute uh, little mushroom, little white mushrooms and little white and little white pearl onions and serve those and put those in the sauce after they're pre-sauteed. So they're still white. So everything is white. And white is a sign of um, eventually became as this as the dish kind of evolved so socially, you know, um, it became a, kind of a symbol of of luxury, of opulence, that you're serving this all-white dish. And it's served over white rice, usually. So you mentioned before, so you're just putting the veal in um, with water. If you're not sealing it in any way, won't there, like, be impurities and things like that that come out of it? Um, so do you need, like, I mean, you do that with some of the beef uh, stew dishes when you're not uh, making when you're not sealing them, that you would cook it first just for like, you know, a few, like 10, 15, 20 minutes, depending on the recipe, whatever it is. And then you change that water 
um, and put it in a different um, plot. Is the same thing? Is that the same thing with the Blanquette or does that not happen with the, the V? If you're really a stickler, I've never noticed it. But if you're a stickler, you can you can strain it. Usually, anyway, you will strain um, you will strain it normally the broth in order to um, strain out things like the herbs you use and the carrots and onion. Um, yeah, so you will strain it and then you'll use it when you use. Yeah, and you will get you and and in France you usually get um, egg yolks. Egg yolks in France are much more yellow than they are in the States, for example. So you will get kind of a yellow, um, you could get a little bit of, you know, deepening of the color, of the, not quite a pristine white of your sauce, yeah. Um, Is there a specific time of the year that you usually have it? The French are very, the French are very, very traditional when it comes to that, when it comes to seasonal foods. And it's, um, it is more of a cool weather dish, like most stews are. Well, I love the way that the French are like that because I also think it's part of – it's something that we all need to learn and embrace because seasonality is also part of sustainability. You know, one of the reasons why so much food is not sustainable anymore is because we do tend to live in societies in some places that want things all year round. I wanted to make a bœuf bourguignon um, for dinner on the weekend and went to the market and couldn't find it. But I could find, like the beef, I couldn't find any at the market today. But the supermarket has it. So we do need to maybe become more of a society that embraces French seasonality and less a society of convenience and getting what we want and just cooking a dish, like you said, like Osibuco or the Blanca de Vue. Well, where I live, it's a very small town. Um, there's, you know, the large supermarket. There's, um, and then we have, we have two butchers in town, but we don't have a primo. We don't have a fruit and, fruit and vegetable salesperson, but we do have two large um, primo. We have a small market here on Thursdays. But if you, there's two, just on the outskirts of Chino, there are two primo. So you go and you buy, they have fruits and vegetables, okay? One of them sells everything and a lot of stuff all year round the other one is strictly local so they will sell local fruits and vegetables local meats local cheeses local fruit juices local everything and um we try and go to them as often as we can uh, because, because which means no tomatoes in winter Exactly. Anyway, when you buy tomatoes in the winter, they're horrible. I know. I know. What would you drink with a Blanca de Vue? Ah, That's a good question. It's a very good question (laughs) that I actually researched. Um, We love that. You would drink a crisp white wine. Now, some people people do add a little wine to, uh, you know, it's a very – plain kind of neutral dish um you do season it with herbs um and salt and pepper but it's always better with a little acidity so some people will cook uh will add wine a crisp white wine to the water when they cook the veal other people will serve it with a lip or add a little bit of either lemon juice or uh, vinegar 
to the uh, to the sauce before it's poured over the meat and served. Um, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law made a very simple plain version and brought the bottle of red wine vinegar to the table that my father-in-law would then drizzle a little a little bit on his blanket at the table. Um, so, yeah, so it's white wine. So you would use either a Chinon Blanc, a white Chinon wine, which is Chenin Blanc grapes, uh, a Touraine, Azé Varigot, a white Cose Hermitage, or a white Côte de Rome. So a kind of dry, very crisp white wine. A dry white wine. We love a good dry white wine. <laughs> is there any variations on the Blanquette de Vaux? Well, I make one that's, I make it with lamb. I haven't made it for a long, long, long time. In fact, I should because I was researching this, you know, preparing for, for this podcast. And I realized that I haven't made this for a long time. I make a curried lamb blanket with lamb. I love lamb. That's my meat of choice. And you add um, curry powder to the sauce when you're making, you make your roux and then you add cream and you add curry powder to it and you serve it with chopped lemon and chopped fresh coriander or cilantro. And that's very, very good. And and I've I've actually, sorry, I've actually had it in restaurants, um, uh, Ville Blanquette, where they put a lot of vegetables in it. So they'll put little, little um, broccoli flowerette and cauliflower with broccoli, uh, cauliflower and, and things like that. So you'll have a whole array of, of vegetables with it as well, which is good. Before we head off, getting back to your favourite topic, which is uh, French food history, what is it about the Blanquette de Vaux, the Blanquette de Vaux and its history that you love so much? Well, f- French history is, uh, French culinary history is, history is very interesting because uh, there's really two French cuisines that developed in parallel, almost never crossing uh, along since the beginning of since the beginning of French cooking, since even before France became France. Um, uh, it kind of developed over t- in, in two distinct parallel paths, one which was royal, noble, aristocratic cooking and the, the chefs in their kitchens, and one was home family peasant cooking. And... And what we know, what eventually developed after the French Revolution, when there were no more aristocrats or nobles or royalty to cook for, uh, that became restaurant cooking, but um, and restaurant cooking as we know it. But so it was very opulent. It was very, you know, exotic ingredients that came from you know expeditions around the world and visiting dignitaries and, and things, and it was constantly being uh, evolved with you know development of cooking techniques and dishes and, and new ingredients and sauces and things like that. Whereas peasant cooking kind of stayed, uh, you know, kind of stayed the same, very constant over the centuries. It was all done with obviously everything that you could get around you. So you grew it, you raised it, you, you know, killed it yourself. And um, it had to be put on the stove in the morning before you went to work. And so you could eat it, it was ready when you came back at lunchtime. And Blanquette is interesting because the beginning, like I said, it was made to either use up cheaper cuts of meat or leftover, like the burnt parts when you roasted a nice veal roast, you cut off, you trimmed the burnt parts and you and then you had your leftover veal, cooked veal. 
and you used this up. So it was probably made for either the staff who worked in a home that was wealthy enough to serve a roasted veal or buy a whole veal and, you know, here's the good stuff for the, for the household and here's the rest for the staff. Um, or it was for, you know, poor man's kind of poor man's food. And then um, over time, uh, so um, because in the first cookbooks that it appeared, it was using leftover meat. So it was probably for people who could who used cookbooks, obviously. Um, and then you have uh, the class bourgeois, or the development of class bourgeois in the 19th century, um, where all of a sudden you have these people who were kind of working class, who were workers, who became managers, who became directors, who became owners of, you know, of, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the English word of manufacturing, you know. And so all of a sudden, these people that came from very humble beginnings were had money. They could have a home, a fancy establishment. They could have a staff. They could have a cook. Um, and they could afford better ingredients. So what did they do? They didn't imitate this royal cooking. What they did was they took their kind of humble, humble recipes that they grew up with and elevated them by all of a sudden, all of a sudden you started having um, people purposely going to the butcher to buy specific cuts of meat for something like the blanquette. Um, all of a sudden they could start using fresh cream in the sauce to bind it. They could add fresh herbs. So they kind of elevated it. And then, of course, another thing they did was they bought, you know, all these fancy serving platters and silver utensils and serving utensils and, and had service and stuff. So they elevated this dish. So it kind of is an illustration of this ev social evolution of, of the French. And, in fact, there's a great um, reference to Blanquette in a Zola, Emile Zola uh, book, called Lessonwell. Let me see if I can find the date, 18... Uh, I don't know how this. Oh, in 1877. So he has a, a, a woman uh, who moves to Paris, a young woman who comes from a very working class background. And she has these, she, she's kind of become involved with this new group of friends who are much more worldly, probably bourgeois. And she wants to impress them because she wants to be accepted by the group. So she invites them to her little apartment for a meal and she serves some blanquette de veau because that's what was going to impress these people who were in, from a better, uh, you know, in a more upper class than she was. So it's a really great um, kind of example of a dish that's evolved from something using leftovers and kind of smothering it under a sauce so you wouldn't know that you were serving leftover pre you know double twice cooked meat or the cheap cuts of meat into something that became um, served to impress people for company but for a very long time um, 19th century early 20th century you have a lot of cookbooks that gave two versions of the blanquette so you had the version with fresh meat um, the fresh cuts of veal with herbs, with cream in the sauce. And then you have the economical version, which is using, it's still using leftover, leftover pre-cooked veal, leftover cooked veal with no cream, just a roux and maybe an egg yolk 
nothing in this nothing in the water just the meal the the veal is just boiled and salted and salt and peppered peppered water and it's really frugal and economical so you're still having this is what we serve the company and this is what you serve at home or for your staff if you have a if you have a staff a you know a cooking staff, a kitchen staff or something you know so um so that's what I find really fascinating about it because it's kind of this reflection of what's going on over time in French social history and evolution of social history, yeah. Finally, the question I ask everybody, Jamie, that's been on Fabulously Delicious is, what, do you, what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? Well, I have to say that what I find, especially as an American, what I find the most fabulous about living in France is that you can get in your car and before the end of the day, you can be in one of 10 different countries. You can be in Italy, you can be in Spain, you can be in in the Netherlands, you can be in Belgium, you can be in Switzerland. You can be, I find that utterly fascinating. That's To me, that's fascinating. <laughs> well, hopefully one day you can get in your car and come down and visit us here in Montmorillon. I would love to. We'll make sure it's veal season and I can break out the recipe book and cook you a blanket de veau. Jamie Shaw, thank you so much for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. You've uh, you've taught us a lot about the blanket de veau and uh, I apologise to everybody about the way I pronounced it, the blanket de veal, and, uh, but I'm sure people will get over that. Thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for having me. It was fantastic. Oh, merci beaucoup. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.